This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Joining me, my co-host, Empower. I love this man, and I'm so grateful because of the holiday, he was able to take the train up from Howard U. <laughs> he is the head of the, t- tell me, the whole department. Afro-American Studies Department. That's it? Howard okay, University. it's simple. It's, it's sim- real simple. Uh, simple. Uh, Dr. Gregory Carr. Thank you. It's a real pleasure, Karen. Always great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, uh, I've been wanting to, to to chop it up with you for quite some time, and Same we're gonna here. we're gonna have quite a um, deep conversation about a number of things. Yes. Uh, but I want to just tell people why we are on holiday today. And uh, shout out to Pastor Bishop Swan, who said that we should cancel this holiday because we don't have a president. I'm, <laughs> I thought, I thought that was really a brilliant tweet, and it's kind of true. Um, officially, it's Washington's birthday. Uh, it's the third Monday of February. Became popular honoring George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, so Absolutely. they put it all together. It's President's Day. It's, it's understood as a celebration of the pres- uh, the birthdays of all presidents. Yes. yes. It's just interesting. Yes. Um and we got all up in the mix because Frederick Douglass decided his birthday was going to be February 14th. Yes, he did. <laughs> and then Carter Woodson said, you know what? I'm going to jam Negro History Week in here, too. Right in here. Right in here. You can't mess with our people. Man. Okay, so let's say this uh, because there are people that complain, well, Black History Month is the shortest month of the year. And it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Tell, tell the people about Carter G. Woodson, just because you are this guy. No. Please break this down for no, us. I mean, well, well, it's funny. In a sentence, you just started it. I mean, Woodson was born in Virginia, now West Virginia. He worked in a coal mine until he was 18 years old before he could go to high school. He finished. He went off from that coal mine to become only the second person of African descent to get a Ph.D. in history from Harvard. Or in any way, the first one was Du Bois. His mother and father could not read. But they made sure all the children could. Two of his uncles were Civil War veterans. They are the ones who taught him and his brothers and sisters to read. Woodson went on to uh, establish the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. He did that in 1915 in Chicago, the Black YMCA, still there on Wabash Avenue. And then he set up shop in D.C. after traveling the world. He taught in the Philippines. He taught in Europe. This man went all over the world. How? Dr. Carr, how how could a man one generation out of slavery? Because yes. I think his both of his parents were born in bondage. That's right. How could he go to Harvard first of all, <laughs> get a PhD from Harvard, right? Yes. I think he went to Fisk as well, or was that Du Bois? Well, Du Bois went to Fisk. Woodson went to Berea College in Kentucky, which was one of the few only the only integrated schools in the South. Yes. Well, well, you know how he did it. He did it the way you do this show every day. He's not going to take an L. And Woodson would remind people all his life when things would get tough and his students, he trained a lot of historians too, mostly men. But although he subsidized Zora Neale Hurston, he paid for her to go south and get the uh, testimony of enslaved Africans, the book that just came out, in fact. Um, Barracoon. Barracoon. That is a book that Carter Woodson subsidized Zora Neale Hurston's trip to Florida to talk to Kasula Lewis. And so it was Woodson was helping her get the stories. But anytime things would get tough and these young people would say, oh, so you're working so hard. Woodson said, I worked in a coal mine. Ain't nobody going to outwork me. He would remind them all the time. That's how he did it. Just, just, but, of course, Harvard didn't have a lot of black folks. Um, <laughs> uh, understatement. How, exactly. How ironic is it now that in 2020, their freshman class, I think for this is the second consecutive year, but they are majority non-white. A number of students, well, many, many of the continental African students are coming and students from the Caribbean. But anyway, Woodson, he just, his hard work and determination really played the major role. 
Uh, and he did not take anything from anybody. He got money from some white foundations, but he mostly got money from rank, regular black folk, rank and file mm. black folk, the black church. I wonder if Robert Church was involved in that too. Oh yeah, Robert Church, Mary Church, Terrell, these are all, oh yeah, and the sisters especially, one of his closest friends in life, two of his closest friends. In fact, you were mentioning one before we came on the air this afternoon, the great Nanny Helen Burroughs, very good friends with Carter Woodson, also Mary McLeod Bethune, who became the president of the association. She wrote the first tribute to him after he passed in 1950. I need you to help me today, Dr. Dr. Carr, because mm-hmm. um, I'm struggling. As, as I sit here every day and then, you know, we, we go into these social media spaces, which I think are the bane of our existence. <laughs> Amen. But, but but I also see the state of black people. So I'm watching the NBA All-Star game last night, which is amazing. It was yeah. amazing. The best five minutes of basketball I've seen in a long time. Shout out to Team LeBron. It's a great idea how oh, they remixed it. Wasn't that beautiful? Telling you, everybody's saying the same thing. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Because they started playing. Right. When the score was 153 to 154, I was like, they need to get to 157. I said, oh, this is some basketball. Yes. But I'm watching the whole weekend of brilliant, and you know, because it wasn't just the ballers. No. It was like celebrities. And you just see in Chicago this this cacophony of black brilliance and yeah. wealth. And yeah. and just it was just so nice to, to see it. Yes. So there's an elevation of us. But yet we're so focused on where we can't go. Coupled mm. with, coupled with allowing, and I want to have this conversation today because I'm sick of it. I know that's right. Coupled with this notion of illegitimate black people. Who gets to be black? Who's not black? Who's black? Whether we talk about Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, this person's from the Caribbean, this person's African, they're not black. They can't. They shouldn't be in our movies. Yes. I watched this great documentary over the weekend done by a British filmmaker talking about black people in film. Mm. They Gotta Have Us. Oh, the new one, yeah. On Netflix. On Netflix, yes. Woo! I haven't seen it yet. How is it? Amazing. Mm. Last time we get to see Diane Carroll, last time we get to see John Singleton, this British filmmaker did wow. the damn thing. And then when he was talking to David Ayelolow, yeah. who played Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, King which sure. a lot of people had a problem with. Mm. But that movie wouldn't have gotten done without him. Right. He brought Ava DuVernay in. Right. He funded a lot of the, the things that happened. And he's like, I'm going to play Martin. Yeah. I'm putting my money behind this. <laughs> Six other directors came in. They couldn't get it done. Hmm. He said, I think Ava DuVernay could tell this story. Yes. So you want to complain about this, but yet... When stuff doesn't get done, it's the man. No, it's us. No, that's us in our regard. And, that, and you know, it's interesting. Our memories are so short. And I think social media has a lot to do with that. Technology. It's not our fault as living beings, but the technology has disrupted our memory. Paul Winfield played Martin Luther King in, uh, what was it, like an eight-hour multi-episode series back in the 70s. Martin Luther King has been played multiple times on television. He's been played in the films. And so when David Oyewolo comes along and says, I want to play him, then people say, well, he shouldn't. Wait a minute, pause. He wants to play Martin Luther King. Please understand. And like you said, we were talking about Carter Woodson. I know we're going to keep talking about Woodson. One of the things Carter Woodson said in 1933 in Miseducation of the Negro, he said, you know, one of the problems we have is that when we want to do something for the race, people look at us like we crazy. And he says, you have to also understand that when we have entertainers, he said, black people think because I can sing or because I can tell a joke. And he, he literally writes this. In he the said, 1930s. Yes, 1933. Woodson says, and this, mind you, this is the time when Paul Robeson is making films, a trained actor. In fact, he says, Ira Aldrich and Paul Robeson are two trained actors. We should lift them up. He says, but this society will go and find black people with no training and have them cut a shine and laugh and tell old plantation jokes. He says, that's the type of thing that they want to see, and we need to be embracing those of us who have 
training in the arts. David Oyuola is a trained actor. People say, why are these British people come away? Wait, wait, did you see that they studied? Like Angela Bassett studied at Yale, like uh, um, Chadwick Boseman studied at, at Howard. You have people who are trained actors. Don't get mad at that, brother. Go out there and produce some more people. Make your film. Everybody can make a movie today. And Ava DuVernay will be the first to say, that sister, always talented, wasn't trained as a director, but you can see with every project she undertakes, she's growing as an artist. She's learning the technique. And I know living in D.C., one of her close elders, the great Holly Garima, who made Sankofa, every, when she comes to D.C., she goes and hangs out with Holly. She's soaking up the knowledge. And now she's bringing on this new generation of black yes. uh, filmmakers, particularly women. That's how you do it. You build institutions. Anybody complaining, if you're not helping with the work, you should probably just pay your money, watch this film, and then, you know, go on about your business. Stop Come trying on. to tear us down. Come on. Yes. David Ayello said that he probably knows more black history than most black people oh, because of all of the roles he had to study, yeah. study for. That's without a doubt. Um, speaking of one of the roles, he was in Queen of Katwa. Uh, which yes. is a brilliant, brilliant role about a man teaching young people how to play chess no in question. Africa. No question. Uh, one of the stars, uh, Nikita Pearl uh, Walegwa, she yes. died at the age of 15. She had a brain tumor in 2016 that she seemed to have recovered from, but it came back. It was found. And because of where she lives in the world, they didn't have the resources to actually help her. This is a, and she played an amazing role. She was uh, Katwa's, you know, friend, but she was yes. brilliant. And yes. she, she got her ass kicked by this girl <laughs> that that came from nowhere. And she had been studying it a long time, but they ended up, y'all got to see the movie. It's amazing. But that this young lady is dead at 15. Mm just because of where she was born in the world, just because of the lack of resources. You know, mm. I just just want to underscore that too and, and shout him out because that's a mil f film that would not have gotten made without him as well. No question. And it's good to see those young actors and actresses. What's the sister's name? Uh, her people are Kenyan. I think she was born mm. in Mexico. She Nuango? Was, yes. L Lupita, Lupita Nuango. Lupita, yeah. shout out to her too. And you know, it's interesting because, you know, first of all, chess came out of Africa out of Saudi Peninsula, across North Africa, through the Moors. And they're the ones who wait, taught chess. Wait, Dr. Carr, I was told chess came from the uh, Asians. <laughs> of course. They, of course they would say that. But uh, but it's clear that the Africans and the Arabs, the Muslims, taught the Spanish, and then it spread through Europe. So they, I mean, look, well, we know we know another thing as well. It didn't come from Europe. But I know one thing, what you said, Karen, is so important. This young sister passes because of, among other things, the lack of, of things that every human society should have. And you shouldn't be in East Africa. You shouldn't be in uh, Kenya. You should not be in Uganda and not have access to basic health care. And this sister right here, she's a celebrity. All the attention she brought to East Africa. Mm -hmm. And this is Disney. This is like the Death Star. This is the battleship. In other words, once you've gotten in that Disney market, you have the possibility of not only reaching everyone, but making people aware. This shouldn't have happened if it yeah. really came down to facilities. And they had raised money the first time she was diagnosed to, yes. to get, I mean, uh, but again, to have to like do crowdfunding basically to. Right. So again, our focus is is not where it needs to be. Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. I have you in today because uh because I want to talk with somebody brilliant. I was so excited. Oh. I you know the the 
the possibilities are endless when we bang up against each other yeah. with knowledge. You know, when you come with something th- that's more than just your opinion. That's why I love our conversations because you be having the facts down, and we and this is the way it should be. We should I be have questions. Conversations. I, more than me facts, too. I'm me just too. curious. <laughs> I just need to know. I don't want to say I heard it somewhere. I want to know. Me, me neither. Chess came from Africa. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. Awari is the lar- the oldest game ever. And come on it's now. So complicated. And I want to know. See that fact right know. there. People didn't even people missed that. Y'all better slow down now. Rewind this right here. Y'all pick up on that Arawa. Y'all find out about that game, about these board games that black people created. Come on. Uh, so, so tell me, you know, um, I'm struggling with this this new movement as we, we get into the political uh, landscape and people telling people if they don't have an agenda that we shouldn't vote for them. And mm. while I understand that, listen, um, reparations are important. I think they're old. I think we should have them. Yes, absolutely. However, however, um, we need to vote. Oh. I don't give a damn who is the nominee. No question. How do you first of all, what's your background, Dr. Carr? Where, where, where are your people's from? Nashville, Tennessee. Well, my mother's from Alabama. My father from East Tennessee. I was raised and born and raised in Nashville. Went to Tennessee State University, undergrad. My HBCU, I, I tell people I'm a field HBCU Negro. They, they let me work at Howard, but I don't know if they would have let me in with my high school grades. <laughs> Can't tell you the truth. I uh, left there and went to Ohio State. Uh, because my my mentors had gone to Ohio State. This was back in the 40s when black folks couldn't go to school in the South unless you went to HBCU. And you certainly couldn't go to law school or medical school or professional school. So I went to Ohio State in Columbus because Jamie Williams and McDonald Williams, the husband and wife who were Tennessee State professors, went there in the 40s. Uh, Jamie Williams is still alive. She's 101 years old. Wow. She was the first black woman to edit the African Methodist Episcopal AME Church Review. Uh, wonderful, Wilberforce graduate. Uh, her husband just passed at 99, McDonald Williams, last year. Anyway, I went there to, for law school, got a law degree. And after my acts, I spent the summer of 1989 here in D.C. So I know earlier you were talking about WRL. And I remember Bob Law. I would be up all oh middle of the night listening to night talk and <laughs> knowing I got to be at work in the morning. 99 Hudson Street. I worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, in fact, I clerked that year with a young sister from the University of Virginia, second year law student, Tanya Lewis, who is now Tanya Lewis Lee. Uh, she was in law school at the time. We were at the same time. So anyway, I, I got here and I went uptown to Spike hundred- Lee's wife. Spike Lee's wife, yes. Clarify. But not, but she's so much <laughs> she's more than Spike. No yeah, she's so much more than Spike oh, Lee's no, wife. But I just no want question. for people who don't, you just dropped a name no, that yes, may not true. have Thank you. Yes. connection. Yeah, and when you see her, yeah, you say, Oh, that's no 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 no. That sister's a first rate intellectual on her own oh, right. Yeah. Head and a great writer. Oh yeah, no question. No question. <sighs> she's got a novel that she has not released. Really? I'm like so mad that she I'm like, see. just let me just this is fantastic. all right. Go ahead. I come hanging out with you, no question. Because you, I mean, this this is the level of discourse our people need to be in. So yeah, I spent the summer here, and I went to 145th and Convent. The young brother who is now the chair of Black Studies, Black and Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, my man Tony Brown. Tony took me uptown, and Tony said, "I know you listen to John Henry Clark tapes in Columbus, Ohio. You read his books. Come on, let's go see the man himself." So I'm sitting in First World Alliance at this church on 145th and Convent sitting up under John Henry Clark. And when he said all he ever wanted to be was a great classroom teacher, that was July 1989, I said, that's what I want to do. So I finished the law degree, but then I went right back to graduate school. Uh, Manning Marable at the time was chair of Black Studies at Ohio State. Manning Marable, who wrote the last quintessential book on Malcolm X. On Malcolm X, X that's right. Uh, how Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America, you name it. First-rate intellectual out of Ohio. I went to see Manning Marable. I said, Dr. Marable, what you think? He said, 
you know, we need some people to train this next generation. So if you want to come over here with us, please do. So I went and got my master's at Ohio State. And then I went to Temple. That's how I ended up on the East Coast in Philadelphia. Um, Malefi Asante and his crew, Abu Abari, uh, Karimu Welsh, had created the first PhD program in African-American studies in the world. And I knew I wasn't going to get in. So I applied a year early, knowing I was going to get rejected and said, and then they could tell me what I needed to do to apply the next year. Pause for a second. Yes, ma'am. Why did you think you weren't going to get in? Well, because it was the only one in the world. So every year, hundreds of people were applying from all over the country. And many of these people were, you had everybody from lifelong revolutionaries who were going back to school to the top students who never went anywhere but school. I mean, across the board, Bobby Seale was in the program at that time. Black Panther. Black Panther. Regina Jennings, one of his comrades from the Panther, who ended up getting a PhD in that program. I mean, across the board. So I knew out of hundreds of applications from all over the world, if you're letting in 10 or 12 people this a year, okay, I'm not getting in the first time. So they sent me a letter and said, you've been accepted. And I was like, wow. So I had to call them and said, look, I'm not finished with my master's yet. Can I defer? <laughs> so just for, just clarification. Yes. yes. You applied a year early. Yes. Thinking that you would not get in. Knowing I wouldn't get in. Knowing that you would not get in. Yes. And so that you would then get intel about how to make sure that you would get in the next time. That's exactly right. I just need people, because everybody feels like, you know, things are just so... That entitlement. Yeah, Yeah. why didn't I get... Mm -mm. You were like, okay, I'm Mm going to apply so I can know what the... But you got in. I, I take reading and writing the way you take it. Intellectual work is slow work. It's accretive work. You've got to build up to it. And I know that we know that our people understand that, but they don't necessarily put that. They don't apply that necessarily to book work. But you apply it to the basketball court. I mean, one of my professors used to say, nobody ever sees black people ask for affirmative action on the basketball court. Nobody last night was asking for them to slow the game down. I mean, Chris Paul had an alley-oop. That man is 138 years old. I said, what are Come they doing? Come on now. He's not, he's not 40, Dr. Carr. What no. you're not going to do is ageism <laughs> on this show. Okay, you're right. I won't engage in ageism. Chris, Chris Paul is short. Yeah. You can say he's short he's and short. stout. He's short and stout. And, 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 <laughs> and you're right. And in the last several years, you know, Charles Bartley was talking to him last night, he's completely changed his diet. He's going to the plant-based, to the vegan. Really? Yeah, because he said, I got to stay in the league. I mean, so, in other words, he's not asking for any uh, public assist. He's not asking for any oh, lowering of standards. No. Don't show. Don't make the basket shorter. Don't make the basket shorter. I'll get up there. I'll get up. Throw the ball, man. So, yes, I took the same just like you do. We take this seriously. You don't expect to get in on the strength or the hookup. No. Let me do, let me do the work. But what I discovered after I'd been accepted was, See, I come from law school to graduate school, and you can't fake in law school. You come in there with an 800-page book, and the books, the, are, the the pages are the texture of tissue paper, and they call on you in contracts and say, Mr. Carr, uh, could you please uh, state the facts in Williams versus Walker Thomas? If you haven't read, there's dead silence until you read. Now, you can't, no way you can skim this with 200 people sitting in here looking. So you better be prepared. because so you they had spe- a certain discipline. That's right. That they were looking for. That's right. And I think that's why Woodson had the discipline he had. You ask why he succeeded. This man had to dig in a coal mine with his brothers and sisters. So turn the page in a book. In fact, there's a great story about Woodson. When he was in that mine, his job when he left the coal mine was to go to this brother's house named Oliver Jones. Oliver Jones was a coal miner. He was a veteran of the Civil War. He had fought in the Union Army. Jones couldn't read. But Jones and the other brothers who would come after their shifts, 
they put money in and in Jones's house, they subscribe to every black newspaper in the country and many of the white ones. And Carter G. Woodson's job as a teenage boy coming into Oliver Jones's house was in exchange for ice cream and soda because Jones had stuff in there for the brothers. He said his job was to read the newspapers to these brothers. And then when they when they found out something was going on in Michigan or they some debate was in the U.S. Senate and they didn't know all the facts, they would send Woodson to go research the facts. And at the next session, he had to report out. So I like to tell people he may have had a Ph.D. from Harvard, but he was trained by the brothers in West Virginia coal mines. That's who trained Woodson. It's the same technique, discipline, as you say. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's what got me in. I spent the following year in Ohio State reading everything I could. So when I showed them Philadelphia, I had read everything the faculty had published. I had gone through the footnotes and I said, I'm going to use this degree as a weapon. And since I finished in 98, uh, I worked for the School District of Philadelphia for two years. Last time we were here, we talked about the curriculum. That's when we started working on trying to get this curriculum together. And since 2000, I've been in Washington, D.C. at Howard University because, you know, our most precious resources are young people. And since that campus is full of them, I figured, let me be there, too. And I still get to use a lot of Greek because twice a week I teach at the law school. I teach a class on race and uh, and race and the law at the law school. So, what, what do you think is our greatest obstacle right now as a people? Because the, hmm. the, the, the question, you know, there's a scientific uh, study that says that the brain, once you ask a question, a brain has to stop to try to find the answer. Yes. That's why the what I call the African method, not the Socratic method. No you question. Know, you told us last time no, no. Socrates got that from Africa. It didn't exist. It didn't exist in Greece. That's right. So, so this, so I need to understand that every day. I'm like, how do we get from here to there? Mm. I am so tired of this chasing our tail. Yes. I'm tired of the cyclical way in which we look back 60 years. People were doing greater things actually with less resources and less yes. opportunities. We talked off Mike about uh, about Madam C.J. Walker right. and Booker T. Washington, oh. and and we talk about the 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 media yes. outlets that they produce. Yes, and we're struggling today because. Half the people producing media outlets don't have the discourse or the background to actually be able to sit in that seat to do that. That's right. And and I sit here and I'm like, how do we get from here to there? We can't even have an intellectual conversation about what we expect from candidates mm. without it devolving into cancel culture and you're not black enough. Yes. And what's the black agenda when there's not even, I mean, Tavis has done a, a, a book like 20 years ago about the black agenda. Right. Carter G. Woodson had a black agenda in the thirties. We've always had it. Why haven't we been able to implement it? What is the biggest obstacle to us getting things done? That's a tough one, uh, Karen. I know, I mean, you battle it every day, five days a week, you're on these airwaves and you not only, people are not only listening, they're watching on YouTube, they're in other platforms. I think part of it is we have so much information at our fingertips, but we, we, we've we lost a dimension of being able to be guided through things because there aren't platforms, there are too many platforms in some way. So there's that external factor. Mm. Um, you know, I was talking the other day with a friend about Lerone Bennett, mm. uh, the great Lerone Bennett. When Lerone Bennett was the senior edit editor at Ebony and the chief historian, Ebony Magazine was on the coffee table, either Ebony or Jet, in all the black households. Everyone. Yeah, so, 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 so you know, Bennett didn't have any competition. So when he wrote the, the magazine articles that then Mr. Johnson said, hey, man, you know what? Let's put these together in a book. And so they launched Johnson Publishing Company, the book company, on that, in that 11-story skyscraper in Chicago, and they published before the Mayflower. Now, you know, I know Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a friend. I know you've talked to her. It's a wonderful project, the 1619 Project. But let's not confuse that with 
black people, black institution, black book, black schools, black school teachers, most of them women teaching black children before the Mayflower. But that was during a period when Ebony Magazine was the thing. Ebony has gone through many iterations. The skyscraper has been auctioned off. They just auctioned off all the art that was in the skyscraper. Swan Gallery just had an auction on the 30th of January this year. So Ebony's gone. The Ron Bennett made transition. Mr. Johnson made transition. Ebony still has a website. But guess what? So does everybody else. So I think part of it is everything is out there now. There's not places for just to focus our attention. That's one thing. And then, of course, there's us, which is the real thing. But you about to say something. No, no, I, I agree. Um, and I've come to this epiphany recently, actually, mm. in the last, this in 2020, that, um, and I did a podcast about it today, that we focus too much on what we can't do and who's holding True. us back and who's doing this and this and that. I was in a YouTube comments today and was like, well, we don't have, and I was like, we spent a trillion dollars. <laughs> we have all, we don't have the resources. We spend a trillion dollars as a group, larger than the GDP of Mexico, larger than the GDP of Russia, the amount of money that we spend. If we focus that money, Mm -hmm. if we circulated that money, if we directed that money, trillion dollars Mm -hmm. collectively? Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, My friend Jared Ball, who teaches at Morgan State, he's just written a book called The Myth of Black Buying Power. And what Jared says, and he's not alone, Derek Hamilton out at Ohio State, there are number of people who've been saying this, talk about the fact that we have this collective wealth, we kind of tally it that way. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what we often don't take into account is how these institutions absorb that income. So, you know, Dr. John Ricard used to say, he said, if black people just made their own draws, we could, but guess what? Can we make them three for a dollar? Are they going to come in from China? And can I go get them from Walmart? Because if not, I'm not going to buy right. Karen Hunter's underwear line. Why? Because it costs, she got two for a dollar. I can get three for a dollar. Wait, slow down. Understand that some of this is political. Just because it costs a little more now, that's not because she's taking the money living the high life. Understand this is institution come building. On. Come on. That's the thing. That's what Woodson's talking about. That's us. Now, that, that is. is us. And, and it bugs me out that we, that, that, that the Koreans run, and no disrespect to them because they all. figured it out. That's right. But how do they control the hair care industry <laughs> when we are the, pre, the, predominant, the predominant market? Yes. And we don't control the distribution chains. We don't control. And the wealthiest companies that have come out have been hair care. From Madam C.J. Oh, yeah. Walker, Annie, Annie Malone before her. Come on now. Um, but even Ooh, Shea Moisture. You better talk about that poor old. You, now, see, you, yeah. look, she's laying it down. Shea Mo- Bronner Brothers out of yes. Atlanta. That's right. We've, we've made billionaires out of something, but the Koreans have figured out how to institutionalize and systematize yes. our yes. our products. Yes, well, but because it's not economic. It's cultural. And one of the most difficult things for us to face, I don't know that we'll ever be able to have this conversation, frankly, is the question of black culture. What is black culture? When you're talking about a people who come out of a group that was enslaved, who don't have a set of memories that we have developed and cultivated to give us a sense of identity that's separate from or disentangled at moments from the settler colony we find ourselves in, we're sitting on President's Day. As you opened up, 
There are people who are saying, let's talk about George Washington or let's talk about the enslaved at George Washington's place. Yes. Let's talk about Abraham Lincoln. Lerone Bennett wrote a book called Florist in the Glory, where he basically bodies Lincoln. He takes on the whole Lincoln scholar mafia and they mad at him. But he says, I don't care. I got to tell the truth about Lincoln. Lincoln was a racist. Lincoln wanted to get rid of all these people. Come on. You know, and then Woodson comes along before that and says, if Lincoln's birthday is one day, Washington's birthday is another day. Douglas, who did not know his birthday, says, I was born on plantation, but my mother used to always call me her Valentine. So I picked Valentine's Day. Woodson said, if I stick the second week of February in the calendar and say this is the week that we're going to celebrate what we did the other 51 weeks, because that's what Negro History Week was supposed to be. He says, if y'all study all year, the second week of February, we're going to tally it up. I want the kids to do speeches. I want the school teachers to talk about this. He'd be mad as hell now because he, wait a minute, is this the only time y'all talking about it? You <laughs> yes. got it backwards. Right, you know right. This is not what I intended. You know, but but unlike the Koreans, the Chinese, the Japanese, and we understand that these people, as you said, they're complex people with their own differences. But one thing they don't uh, have a deficit of is a sense of collectivity that's born in a common language, a common culture. Black folks' culture and language is grounded in enslavement. So that we see a 16- Hold up. Yes, yes. We have Dr. Carr here today. Dr. Gregory Carr from the great Howard University. I'm going to challenge you. Please. And and I need to, Yes, right? this is a good conversation. This, this, is, what this is President's Day. Is a, so no one's listening. But I want to have this conversation with you because I, I know everybody- listening to you. No, no, no. Everybody, <laughs> this is a holiday. Nobody's tuning into the radio. So can we have an honest conversation? I hope so. Okay. Yes. Last time you were here, I hadn't gone to Africa. I hadn't gone to Ghana. Mm, that fast? You've yeah. been, you been since then? Been and back. <laughs> Something transformed in my mind as I'm standing at Elmina Castle. As I'm standing there. And it wasn't what I expected. You know, I expected to feel all of this, you know, as I'm standing in that doorway of no return, my yes. big ass couldn't have fit through that little tiny space. Yeah, I would have had to get down. And, and I'm not the biggest person in the no, world, but you know they were bigger of us. And scrape through to get to that boat. I sat there, and the question that I kept asking myself was, how did the Portuguese and then the Dutch and then the French and then the thing, how were they able to do this for 400 years with people? How were they able to do it? So I'm going to throw it back at you. I think it's African to not be communal. Now, you could be communal within your tribe, but Mm. because Africans did not see themselves, because even within Ghana, they're tribes. Even within Nigeria, they are divvied up. No question. Because you didn't see yourself as a singular thing, and the Europeans did, Mm -hmm. to the point where they had councils and conversations about how they were going to divvy up your continent. Oh, yeah. It was just easy to march in, give you something, tell Mm. you that person. And we saw it with Rwanda. Yes. Tell you your neighbor is your enemy. Yes. Here, give me your neighbor. And this is what, here's some guns or here's some candy or whatever. Here's a mirror. Ashanti's. Here's a mirror. And it was easy to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say to you, Dr. Carr, yes. that to be a black American, and this is not, again, no, dis- no, I'm not disparaging anybody. No question. Is to be a being that had to, one, evolve within a generation through torture. We yes. know that because the half has never been told, talks Ooh, about, right? The separations yes. of the hemispheres of the brain to pick more cotton. Yes. That's within a generation, which is unheard of scientifically. Yes. We are people that had to, Stuff ourselves inside to endure something for 400 years here. Yes. All right. So, Elmina, in and out. Every month you die, seven out of 10, the rest mm. of you get on a boat. Mm. That's maybe most of you die in a boat, but, yeah. but the product of that, somebody that endured all of that and then came here and then endured all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Making chitlins, something we talked about off mic as well. <laughs> yes. You're going to give me snouts, hoofs, mm. entrails. Mm. 
tails. I got to figure this out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I got to make it taste good. Because other people will put a foot in some soup and just eat it because of sustenance. We made it delicious. Sure did. It's disgusting stuff. Yeah. We made gizzards and livers. Oh, we made delicious. No question. Which means there's a level of ingenuity. Oh, yes. No question. Every single uh, invention that we didn't get a patent for because it was illegal for it and a, bondage, a person in bondage to have a patent from the cotton gin on down. Come on. Can I tell me, because it's the mother of invention, necessity. No, cotton, no question. Right. I need to figure <laughs> out how to do this. So what I'm saying to you, Dr. Carr, yes, is ma'am. that there's a, even in Puffy, the remix, the ability to take something and make something new out yes. of something that's already in existence and make it dope. Yes. That's who we are. It is. And it's a collective that, exists in all of us. And I think our job needs to be to wake it up. Carter G. Woodson had it. You could pick in a coal mine. You know they say to us, jack of all trade, master of none. Well, we actually had to master everything. Oh, no question. So, yeah, I can probably pick cotton, make music, do math, right? Cure, find blood plasma, figure out, Come yeah, on. I could probably do all of those things. That's right. But if I don't know that because I've been told that I'm this, that, and wow. the other, and I believe it, then how do I ever walk into my purpose? We're sitting here right there. You got a law degree yeah. that you don't use, no. except to teach. Yeah, that's it. And then went back and got a PhD. Yeah. It's reading and writing. <sighs> I'm saying that it's just the opposite. Like, uh, everything that's possible is possible because we have made it possible. That's right. That's right. And if we understand the possibilities, nobody can come in like you said, and how do you have a system for something that I created? Mm, mm. How do you have a system? And I can't, I'm not making money off of it. Mm. You don't get to be in my neighborhood. But that's because we don't know who we are. That's right. So let's spend some time yes. talking about that today. Yes.